Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 12, 1 through 8. This is the word of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord on the Sabbath. We come before you and our hearts are in different places. Um, Some of us are grieving and need your Holy Spirit to comfort us. Some of us need your Holy Spirit to convict us. Lord, uh, what we all have in common without exception is what we need is an absolute clear picture of who Jesus is. And so... As we open your word, we pray that he would be made clear to us, each of us, and your Holy Spirit's power would work wonders, transforming us this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. This coming December marks the 120th anniversary of a monumental event in the history of aviation, which took place in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, Orville and Wilbur Wright, of course, accomplished what is usually called the first successful powered flight, lasting 12 seconds, covering over 100 feet in windy, freezing conditions. Their first real attempt was also in bad weather, just three days earlier, lasting only three seconds when the aircraft sustained damages. What you may not know is that one day earlier, the weather was perfect a prime opportunity to make their first attempt. But that day was a Sunday. And the Wright brothers did not want to make any attempts on a Sunday. 20 years later, Olympian Eric Liddell refused to run his best event in the 100 meter because, again, it was scheduled for a Sunday. His decision was memorialized in the film Chariots of Fire, which won Best Picture. Throughout history... There's been controversy among church-going people about what is and isn't allowed on a Sunday. And this controversy is a direct carryover from the Jewish debate about what is and isn't allowed on the Sabbath. We start today's passage with a disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees about this very thing. Now, we've seen opposition to Jesus many times up to this point. In Matthew, but this particular disagreement is so intense that we see for the first time his enemies talk about murdering him. 
So things are escalating quickly. And in many ways, the opposition to Jesus can be summarized in a question the Pharisees might ask if they were around today. Jesus, who do you think you are? In your bulletin, I've divided our passage into three sections or three answers to that question. First, Jesus is the Lord. Last week, Ben preached the first part of chapter 11, where Jesus identifies himself as the place of rest. Okay, Jesus is gentle and lowly. He is where you go to find rest for your souls. Now, it's no coincidence that Matthew follows that beautiful passage with a controversy about the Sabbath, which was all about rest. The Jews took the Sabbath very seriously, and for good reason. This is what the Lord commanded Israel, that they would work for six days in the week and then rest on the seventh day, which started on Friday night and went to sundown on Saturday. You would cease from all work and rest. Leon Morris notes that many Jews, including women and children, were slaughtered 200 years earlier in the Maccabean era when they were attacked because they'd rather die than break the Sabbath to defend themselves. Among, along with circumcision and the food laws, Sabbath observance was their identity marker and how they distinguished themselves from, separate from the Gentiles. So in these first two episodes in chapter 12, we have a conflict between what Jesus and his disciples did on the Sabbath in contrast to what the Pharisees believed was appropriate. So in the first episode, we heard in our scripture reading minutes ago, Jesus and his disciples are going through a grain field. And one thing very different from today versus ancient times were the roads. Today, roads go around people's property. But back then, roads went right through the fields. And the law allowed travelers to pick the grain along the path and to eat it. The fields near these paths were generally not harvested. So travelers or the hungry or the poor could help themselves to that grain. So nothing controversial about that. But this was on a Sabbath. And the law did require taking a break from work. But what constituted work was debated. Later traditions uh, that the Pharisees were referencing were very strict. They had 39 activities that constituted work. And among the forbidden activities were picking and threshing grain. And by that definition, the disciples were in violation. And the Pharisees are quick to point this out to Jesus. And Jesus responds to them in a, in a few different ways. First, he gives two examples from their scriptures where people were not condemned for doing something technically in violation of the law. When Jesus says, have you not read these things, it would be like me saying to a Christian, have you not read John 3.16? I mean, these are things they've known like the back of their hands. The first example is from the life of David in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David and his men were on the run from Saul, and they were hungry. So they ate the bread from the tabernacle, which was reserved for the priests only. They disobeyed the law for the sake of their hunger, and they were not condemned for that. So genuine human need seems to override strict observance of ritual. Second example is connected to worship. The priests were serving in the temple. That's their work on the Sabbath. 
So work related to the worship of God also seems to override ritual. In both of these cases, exceptions to the rule were allowed. Now, it's interesting. Jesus does not argue that his disciples were just as hungry as David's men or just as needy or that his disciples are all Levites serving in the temple. They weren't. He doesn't argue that. Rather, he says this, something greater than the temple is here. By implication, he's also saying something greater than David is here. Jesus is the new and greater King David. Jesus is the new and greater temple. Like David's men followed their king, Jesus is the promised greater king, the son of David, and therefore his disciples are not guilty. Like the priests served in the temple, the place where you meet God, okay, consider that's what the temple is, the place where you meet God and have your sins atoned for. Jesus is the new and greater place where you meet God and have your sins atoned for. That's an astonishing claim. Okay, in his next response, Jesus reminds them of the heart of God as it relates to the law. He says in verse 7, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. This is from the prophet Hosea. Jesus is using this statement to show the reasoning behind what he's saying. What I'm telling you about the law is not out of the blue. Okay, it's based on the heart of God. Okay, God's priority is compassion over ritual. When there's a tension in God's commandments or conflict between commandments, how do you determine what's right? How do you decide what to do? What's the priority? This is the priority. Mercy. In Hosea, this is hesed, sometimes rendered loving kindness. Hosea made it clear to the people that God's priority between performing the sacrifice is not insignificant. This is required, commanded by the law. Versus showing mercy and loving kindness, also commanded by the law, God prioritized the latter. Showing mercy and love is a weightier matter of the law. And that's what the Pharisees were neglecting. When they're deciding between following a legal observance versus showing mercy, they were to choose mercy. Perhaps a modern day example will help. Let's say you have a high school son who has a curfew of 10 p.m. But on his way home, his friend, a girl, driving in front of him has a flat tire. He needs to make a decision at that point between the regulation of the curfew and loving his neighbor. Any good parent would want him to help his friend, not leave her on the side of the road just to get home in time. Now, the curfew's good. This is the point. It's a good principle that you want your son to take seriously for manifold reasons, right? But when that regulation comes in conflict with what you might call a weightier matter, like showing love to a friend with a flat tire, you want him to choose the latter. The Pharisees were like those who were elevating the 10 p.m. curfew to override any other consideration. And the principle driving here, what Jesus is saying about the Sabbath law, the heart of God's will is not ritual and regulation. The heart of God's will is mercy and love. But if that were not enough, Jesus drops an absolute bomb in verse 8. 
he makes this claim. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, Jesus is not appealing here to the law, but to his authority over the law. I decide what the Sabbath means. Okay, I'm Lord over it. Now, when his Jewish audience heard him say this, it could only mean one thing. There's only one with cosmic lordship over the law, and that's the one who gave the law in the first place. That one is almighty God. So Jesus, who do you think you are? I am the Lord, the one with authority of almighty God. It's no coincidence that later in this passage they plot ways to kill him. Okay, let's look at the next story. Another controversy on the Sabbath. Let's start reading. Follow along in your own Bibles at verse 9. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. First, take note that the Pharisees' question presupposes something, doesn't it? Their assumption is that Jesus can heal this guy. Like we've seen earlier, the Pharisees don't deny Jesus' power to heal. They couldn't deny it because it was obvious to everyone. As we'll see later, the only thing they could deny is the source of his power. So, this man in the synagogue was handicapped with a hand that is not functional. Now, scholars note, the way this is worded is very clear. This is not an emergency. Okay? It's not like this just happened and his hand's bleeding or something. This man's life or health is not in danger. And that distinction's important because um, it could have waited till the next day, right? Some rabbis even then would have argued it, was, it would be okay to heal on the Sabbath if life was at risk. That's not the case here. Jesus deliberately performs a non-emergency healing on the Sabbath. And before healing him, he gives a short parable about a sheep that falls into a pit on the Sabbath. He says, no one's going to wait till the next day to lift out the sheep just so they can check the box that they avoided this particular work of lifting on the Sabbath. Okay, how much more would it be the case, Jesus argues, to help someone created in the image of God on the Sabbath? So doing good on the Sabbath hits again on this principle he's hitting at of God's heart as it relates to the law. God prioritizes mercy, compassion, over checking the box on ritual regulation. So Jesus heals the man, giving him a new hand, okay? Really an act of creation, okay? confirming his identity as the Lord of the Sabbath. This healing, of course, is a good thing, an act of compassion, isn't it? Matthew's contrasting here this good thing Jesus does on the Sabbath versus the evil thing the Pharisees do on the Sabbath, which is thinking about ways to kill Jesus. Healing and saving, good things, Sabbath or any day. Not hating or plotting what the Pharisees were doing. We'll revisit this in the application, but 
as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus has the power and authority over what the Sabbath means, first of all. But he also has the power and authority to fulfill the Sabbath. We'll flesh this out later, but for now, just note this ties back to that critical message he gave to the, to the Pharisees earlier about the unshrunk garment and the wineskins. Okay, just like you can't put new wine into old wineskins, you cannot view me and my kingdom through your current grid, he's saying. Okay, I'm not just another rabbi debating with you about the law. I gave the law, and I came to fulfill the law. You need to reorient. This is his message throughout Matthew and to us today. You need to reorient your entire understanding and your life around me. Because something greater than David, greater than the temple, is here. I'm the promised son of David, the Messiah. I'm the one to whom the temple and its sacrifices pointed. Jesus is the Lord. Number two, Jesus is the servant. Let's start reading in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, that is to say he's aware the Pharisees were trying to kill him, Jesus then withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Matthew, yet again, emphasizes, as he's done earlier in, in the gospel, Jesus is the fulfillment of the suffering servant from Isaiah's prophecy. This is the longest Old Testament quotation in Matthew's gospel. But since we've spent significant time on this theme in earlier passages, I'll just cover this briefly. If you missed our message on chapter 3, uh, the baptism of Jesus, uh, we covered this theme in depth then, so I encourage you to listen to that. So just a few quick observations today. First, note that the servant, Jesus, is chosen by God, pleasing to God, and has the spirit of God. Okay, a threefold contradiction to the Pharisees' claim coming later. Second, the suffering servant in Isaiah is one who identifies with his people and ultimately suffers as a substitute for them. Okay, as later chapters in Isaiah make clear, suffering precedes glory. So the cross of Christ will precede his crown and enthronement. However, his time to die has not yet come, which is why he withdraws, and, and also probably why, at least in this case, he tells people not to make him known after he heals them. He doesn't want to be arrested prematurely. Third, note the Gentiles, non-Jews, the Gentiles are included in this mission. The justice and victory he will bring is not just for the Jews. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is a worldwide hope here. Finally, and most importantly, for our purposes today, note that the servant embodies this priority of mercy in obedience to God's law, which is what he's just been teaching about. Okay? When it comes to following God's law, which the servant does perfectly, the priority is showing mercy and compassion. 
So Jesus' interpretation of the law is embodied in his own deeds. Okay? Again, contrasting to the Pharisees and the way they burden people with their leadership and neglect the weightier matters of the law, mercy and love. Jesus, by contrast, is gentle, like we saw last week. He lifts burdens. He doesn't add to them. A bruised reed he will not break. What a wonderful image of this. This is, if you want to read a a short but very good little book about Jesus, our comforter, which we need right now in times of mourning, I recommend The Bruised Reed by Richard Sibbs. He was a Puritan around 1600. It's obviously translated. It's a beautiful exposition of this verse in Isaiah and its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is so merciful and compassionate to the weak and to the helpless, isn't he? Constantly we see this. As Ben pointed out last week, this is not just the human Jesus on display, though. Okay, Jesus embodies the heart of God himself. This is what God is like. Jesus is the servant. Number three, Jesus is the judge. Let's start reading in verse 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? As we've seen many times, the Pharisees don't question the legitimacy of Jesus' miracles like many do today. What they question, the only thing they could question, because they were obvious, is where his power comes from. And they say very boldly that Jesus' power to heal comes from Satan. Okay, Beelzebul, the, the ruler or prince of demons, basically associated with Satan, Jesus dismantles this argument with an analogy because they share a worldview that there's a war going on, a, a battle with two sides, good and evil. It's binary. Okay, you're either on the side of good or the side of evil in this conflict. Satan is on the side of evil, the prince of demons. So if Satan is casting out his own demons in some kind of intentional friendly fire, He's destroying the very army fighting on his side, fighting against himself in a civil war. The assumption behind Jesus' analogy is that Satan is not stupid. He's not going to intentionally undermine his own kingdom. Then Jesus says something that's a little harder for us to understand, I think, verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus seems to be referencing associates or disciples of the Pharisees who at least claim to cast out demons. Now, regardless if they actually were, we know what Jesus was doing, casting out by his own authority and command, was unique. And we know this because of what we see reaction-wise throughout the gospel. Nothing like this has been seen in Israel, people say. So it's possible Jesus is just making the point that those in their own group who at least claim 
to cast out demons, where does their power come from? They know it cannot come from Satan, so they will be your judges. In fact, the prophecies about the kingdom of God are coming and being fulfilled in your midst because I'm defeating Satan by the Spirit of God. Then in verse 29, Jesus uses another analogy. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. The strong man here is Satan. So what Jesus is doing when he casts out demons is like binding up a man and taking goods out of his house. Jesus is binding Satan and taking his possessions as it were. These people possessed. Rescuing people out of Satan's domain. Ultimately, this plundering takes place at the cross. Now, again, he goes back to the binary aspect of this spiritual war going on, and he says something really important for us today. Listen to this, verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Okay, the war between good and evil has two sides, God represented by Jesus and Satan. You are either, I am either, everyone is either on Satan's side or Jesus' side. No one is neutral. No one is like Switzerland in this cosmic battle. Verse 31, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Here we come to the unforgivable sin. So how should we understand Jesus' words here, which seem very strong, don't they? He first says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Don't gloss over that. Okay? It means you can have forgiveness, no matter what you've done. Now, that doesn't mean automatic forgiveness, of course, but through the normal means of the gospel. Repentance, renouncing sin, humility, dependence on God, receiving forgiveness through Jesus. There is no sin too great that cannot be forgiven by those gospel means in Jesus. Even speaking a word against Jesus, the Son of Man, verse 32. Someone could be wrong about Jesus and even blaspheming things against Jesus, but later repent and come to a true understanding of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, before his conversion, blasphemed and persecuted the church, but he was shown mercy because he was ignorant and then repented. Even some of the Jews who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus were ignorant and later repented. They could be forgiven. However, speaking blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, he says. Now, the context here is everything to understand this. What the Pharisees are doing is examining the work of Jesus over the body of work, as, as we say, over, over a long period of time and saying that his power, this is their conclusion, his power is not from God the Holy Spirit. Rather, it's satanic. Okay, this is not a misunderstanding or a premature judgment. This is a calculated conclusion of an evaluation of Jesus and concluding the power behind his ministry is from Satan. The reason it's not forgivable is not because God refuses to forgive like 
They cross some line where God says, hey, I'm never going to forgive that. I don't care how repentant they are later. That's unforgivable. No, that's not the case. The reason it's not forgivable is because they're beyond any means of repentance. They're ascribing the ultimate good of the Holy Spirit's work as the ultimate evil. There's no place to go from there. They lack all sense of sin or need of repentance. They've literally demonized their only means of being forgiven. The Holy Spirit is the power that can apply the truth about Jesus to their lives and save them. They've ascribed that very power to the devil. So this this is far beyond merely disagreeing about the Sabbath, like we saw earlier. Hey, that healing is good, but not appropriate on the Sabbath. No, this is a completely different category. Here they're saying this healing is an evil thing because there's an evil power behind it. The only good that can save them, they're calling that good evil. Now because of this special context, it seems this sin Jesus is talking about is unique to this special period in history of Jesus working by the Spirit's power. Nevertheless, I've talked to people over the years, some of them in tears, who are genuinely concerned that they may have committed this unforgivable sin. Okay, so if that's you this morning, let me put your mind at ease. If you're concerned you've committed this sin, by definition, you've not committed it. Okay, this sin necessarily means you have no concern over committing it. You're beyond repentance. So listen carefully. Any sin you repent of can be forgiven in Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. It doesn't matter what it is. The blood of Christ is that powerful to cover even that. Having said that, it's equally important that you know this. There is no hope for the unrepentant. There's no hope for those who refuse to turn from their sin to Jesus. It is those who do not care about repentance who are lost and therefore beyond the possibility of forgiveness. Now let's read the final section of our passage, starting in verse 33. Jesus says to them, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Jesus, again, emphasizes the binary nature of things. There's two types of trees, and two only. The tree is either good or it's bad. The fruit will match the type of tree that it comes from. In some ways, he's presenting this binary choice to the crowds, okay? To those listening to this conflict with the Pharisees. You must choose between the kingdom truth of Jesus doing good or choose the evil words and blasphemy of the Pharisees. Jesus has done the good thing because he is good. The Pharisees are doing evil because their hearts are evil. Jesus describes them the same way John the Baptist did. You remember this? Brood of vipers. Very strong language, okay? Sons of the serpent. Imagine a Jew hearing that. 
They're unable to say good things because their hearts are corrupt. They're simply saying what their hearts produce, which is wickedness. And their sin is terminal. They and everyone else will be held accountable on Judgment Day for every single word they say because someone's words are merely the fruit of their heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus is not saying our actions don't matter, but our words do. He's saying that our words reveal who we are at the core. And all things come under the evaluation of Christ. Jesus is the judge. I want to spend the rest of our time drilling down on a few application points this morning. The first, letter A in your outline, the heart of the Sabbath. Rest in Jesus' fulfillment. Let me just say something at the outset. I spent a ridiculous amount of time on this point, and I've studied this subject, frankly, not the Sabbath, but the law, um, extensively, at least for my, what time I have. So let me just say that the application of the Old Testament law to the Christian life while fascinating, is a very complex area of Christian theology. So I don't want to oversimplify it, because very good and faithful scholars debate the details of these things. Now, one of the reasons is what we see here in the Gospels, like in this passage, is often extrapolated further in the rest of the New Testament. In Paul's letters in particular, where he says, we're no longer under the law, okay, and so in some sense, we need to read the Gospels in light of that later revelation by the apostles. And Jesus said this would happen, remember? He said the Helper, the Holy Spirit, would come and teach them, the apostles, these things so that they could write their epistles. And that's what they did. Understanding at that point the full effect of Jesus and the new covenant on the law. So all that to say... I want to provide some principles that I hope are helpful in terms of application to our Christian lives. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a statement that sort of sets the tone. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now, what does he mean by fulfill it? That's the million-dollar question. Okay? Now, it's not just that he lives it out perfectly, which is true or that he will later die as a sacrifice, fulfilling it in some sense, that's certainly true as well. But in the context in which he says it, it is his teaching that's fulfilling it. So in the teaching of the apostles as well. Don Carson makes an important point when he notes that Jesus did not say this. I have not come to abolish the law, but to leave it the way it is. He doesn't say that. He says, He's going to fulfill it. So the law doesn't go away. It's not abolished. But at the same time, it doesn't look the same after Jesus. One helpful image I've run across to visualize this is when light is refracted through a prism. If you've ever seen this, when you look at the light coming into the prism and then coming out of the prism, the light doesn't go away on the other side of the prism. Okay? The light isn't abolished by the prism. But it's also true that the light does not look the same after going through the prism. The coming of Jesus and his kingdom are like a prism and has this kind of effect on the Old Testament law. The law doesn't go away after Jesus, but the law doesn't look the same either. In his fulfillment, the law is refracted and looks differently, and different in some cases than others, than it did before Jesus. Okay, first of all, Jesus gives the true meaning of the law. Okay, and it's original intention. We've seen this uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, didn't we? He didn't relax or dumb down the law. 
Murder is still wrong, of course, but he ratcheted up to, to a heart issue of anger. For Sabbath law, we see this as well. Jesus says elsewhere, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath is originally meant to be a blessing of rest and worship. It should be a day of rejuvenation, physically and spiritually. To add burdens and regulations was contrary to the intent of the Sabbath. The Pharisees were turning rest into stress. Imagine you're intentionally taking a restful vacation, sitting by the pool, reading your Bible, and someone says, make sure you don't read more than three chapters today. you got to rest, or you're violating the rest requirement. Or someone's drowning in the pool, don't try to help them. you got to rest. They're missing the point. They would, make, they would be making burdensome what should be rejuvenating. So Jesus fulfills the Sabbath law by getting at the original intention. But Jesus also fulfills the Sabbath in another way. We saw last week, didn't we, that Jesus is our rest. Okay, the writer of Hebrews even says that those who believe in Jesus enter Sabbath rest. Okay, so ultimately, Jesus is our Sabbath. Okay? Colossians 2 and Romans 14 make it clear the observance of Sabbath law in the Old Covenant is no longer binding on the believer. Okay, by virtue of the new covenant in Jesus, we're no longer under the law as a covenant. Okay, special days on the Jewish calendar, including the Sabbath, are not treated differently than any other days for the new covenant believer. Now, this didn't mean the Jews had to stop observing these days, but just like with circumcision, it's not part of the new covenant in Christ. It's been refracted through the Jesus prism. Now, let's be practical about Sabbath. There are two errors I think we can make when we hear this truth that I've just described. The first error is to assign Sunday as a Sabbath replacement. Okay, make rules and regulations about activities which are or are not allowed on Sunday. Like a Christian can't play in the NFL because they work on Sunday. Okay, Craig Blomberg believes this Sunday Sabbath belief kind of thing came out of the, the Puritan legalism. There's no teaching in the New Testament about Sunday being a new Sabbath-keeping day. So one error we can make is reestablishing some kind of Sabbath laws on Sunday that are binding on believers. A second error, though, and I think for us in our society, it's a more prevalent error, and that's ignoring the wisdom of Sabbath altogether. Okay, some laws from the Old Testament are refracted through the Jesus prism into wisdom, and I think Sabbath is one of these. Even though Sabbath law is not binding on us like a covenant, like it was for the Jews, all scripture, including the Sabbath laws, were written for our edification, right? To teach us the heart of God toward us. And there's much wisdom in these laws, and Sabbath is an example of this. Rick Carmichael pointed out something interesting to me, that the, the seven-day week is the only regular timeline on our calendars that is not based on astronomy. Okay, months, days, years, and other cycles are all based on planetary, solar, lunar calendars. But the seven-day week was designed by God for his image bearers for a purpose, to work and take a day of rest. Okay, it is to our peril if we ignore that. So, 
Just because we're not violating a covenant by not taking a day off, you're going against the grain of God's wisdom for your body and soul if you neglect that. Now, we have freedom in Christ and how we practice this, but I would encourage you to practice it. It's great wisdom. For many of us, it's not Sunday. <laughs> if you have a big ministry responsibility, for instance, Sunday can be the least restful day. Just ask Brian Payne. For me personally, and I'm not legalistic about it, but I try with few exceptions to intentionally take from Friday after work through Saturday, if I can, to observe real rest, okay? To take a break from my regular work and regular stressful things and rejuvenate. Now, because my regular job is at a desk, sometimes physical work, physical labor is exactly what I need. Okay, mowing the lawn or working in the yard, for instance, it's rejuvenating to me. Okay, you have to determine what's rejuvenating to you and what is restful. But it is biblical wisdom to observe Sabbath and it is dangerous to avoid it. So find your rest in Jesus' fulfillment, both in this wisdom, but ultimately in his salvation. Letter B, the heart of obedience. Prioritize mercy and love. These last two points will be relatively short. Loving your neighbor as yourself is the sum of the law as it relates to others. That should govern our behavior and obedience to God as it relates to these things. I remember being at a Christian youth event as a young person and someone asking, true story, someone asking, what are you against? <laughs> what a horrible question. As a Christian, you don't want to be known for what you're against. Okay, the Pharisees were known for what they were against, instead of being known for what you're for, okay? As we've seen these last two weeks, God's heart is mercy and love and compassion toward people. And as his people, this is what we should be known for, brothers and sisters, not for what we're against. Even when what we're against is something really important. Take the issue of abortion, for instance. Instead of being known as a social media warrior against abortion or against some other evil, which costs us very little. How much better to be known as an advocate or even volunteer for Alternatives Pregnancy Center, to be known for mercy and compassion, not just toward the unborn, yes, but toward women who need our mercy and love, not our condemnation. It is then, I think we demonstrate the heart of Jesus in our obedience. So as we seek to obey the Lord, let's prioritize mercy and love as he has. Finally, in closing, the heart of the matter. Who do you think Jesus is? Like the crowds watching these interactions Jesus had with the Pharisees, Jesus demands a decision from you about who he is. And there's no neutral ground with Jesus. Remember, he says, whoever's not with him is against him. And there's a time for choosing, and the time is short. Many of us had a dear friend and ministry partner, Laura Hamlin, who went to be with the Lord just this last week. In our minds, it seems like her life was cut short, but her time had come, and she was ready. Are you ready this morning? My friend believed with all her heart 
what Jesus proclaimed about himself in our passage today. She believed that Jesus is the Lord who speaks for God. She believed that he is the suffering servant who would die for and save any sinner who turns to him in faith. She believed that he is the judge of all that is and all that will be. And she lived her life accordingly. You see, you either believe Jesus and you give your life entirely to him or you don't. It's binary. There's no third way. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will enter Sabbath rest in Jesus, like my friend, both in this age and the age to come. Would you please stand with me as we close? Our Father, we thank you for these truths this morning. We thank you for the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. Lord, I want to pray for those here who are wavering in their belief or opinion about Jesus. Let them not believe the lie that there's a spectrum of allegiance to Jesus but there's only two choices. May they give their lives entirely to him today, that they might be saved. Father, for those grieving, I just pray this week you would comfort them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Comfort us with the knowledge of who Jesus is. We're so thankful. Amen.